Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. I don't know about you, but I'm going to assume the answer is yes. I love technology. I really, really love technology. I am fascinated by technology and how it continues to move and shift and change and how it continues to just radically revolutionize our lives and the world around us. I love technology. I love the fact that I walk around with a supercomputer in my pocket. We might not consider it a supercomputer today, but it's a supercomputer from 1980 standards, right? Those things were like full-on rooms of computing genius and mastery. And here we walk around with something that's even more powerful than that in our pockets. I love how technology has continued to push us and mold us and shape us in different ways as a people. And yet at the same time, I'm really fascinated by how it continues to change and transform us, not only for good, but for bad. There's actually a shadowy side or a dark side to this sort of uh, technological advancement that we experience as a people. I love technology. I love learning about technology. I love to read articles online about how new features and new things that are going to make your life so much better and so much easier coming out. I, I, I love reading about how like Google, like, okay, Google is going to like revolutionize the world or Alexa is going to catch up to Google someday and make it even better. <laughs> I love talking to Carlos about AI for an hour and listening to all of the good things about what artificial intelligence can do. And yet at the same time, I sit there and I scratch my head. I'm like, uh-huh, sure, that's great. Because I have no clue what he's talking about. But it's amazing because I'm super fascinated by it. I love talking to Jen and the, the stuff that she is doing with work, like the innovations with HIV and AIDS research and the travels that she's doing and how technology is actually working to heal and cure diseases, to transform and make a difference in people's lives. And I love talking to Andy about the efficiencies of delivery systems. Mainly because, like, the whole thing is like, how can I get my package to you in an hour, right? And I'm like, what? This thing is coming from, like, Tibet. How on earth is this little bracelet from Tibet going to make its way all the way to Seattle in an hour? And he's like, oh, we got a plan for that. What? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I love these sorts of conversations. I love how technology continues to radically transform and change the world around us. It's super fascinating to me. But it also has its deficiencies. It also has its challenges. In her book, Nancy Bame says this about technology. Technologies affect how we see the world, our communities, our relationships, and ourselves. They lead to social and cultural reorganization and reflection. They lead to social and cultural reorganization and reflection. I kind of want to agree with her, and I really kind of want to disagree with her at the same time. I think she's totally right that technologies affect how we see the world. 
right? It has totally transformed how we see everything around us. And it's transformed our communities. It's transformed our relationships and even ourselves. But I'm not so sure that we have led ourselves into the reorganization and reflection side of it, specifically the reflection side of it. I don't think we've actually done a really good job of reflecting on how technology really has affected our world, our communities, our relationships, and ourselves. I think we've had one-off conversations or one-off thoughts about it, but not real true deep reflection about how it changes and transforms us. And I think that she also is, like, like she's missing a a side of that, to to that reflection bit. This isn't anything new. Back in 1965, this is what Dr. King said about technology. We have allowed our technology to outdistance our theology. We have allowed our technology to outdistance our theology. We have allowed technology to way surpass how we think about it and how it affects our view of God, how it affects our view of self, how it affects the view of the world around us, and how it affects our view of relationships. The exact same thing that Nancy Bain said, right? She just has, happens to believe that we reflect on it a little bit more. I'm not so sure. I just don't know if we've actually spent the time reflecting on it. Dr. King continues. This is a sermon at the Temple of Israel of Hollywood. He said, we have allowed our technology to outdistance our theology, and for this reason we find ourselves caught up with many problems. Through our scientific genius, we made the world a neighborhood, but we failed through moral commitment to make of it a brotherhood. And so we've ended up with guided missiles and misguided men. 1965. At this point, he was preaching against the war in Vietnam. He was talking about the war in Vietnam and all of the technological advances that had led to a better, more apt, more destructive military. And how that militarization, the technology of militarization, had done a really good job of helping us form an identity as a people of war. But at the same time, we did a massive, massive disservice to our understanding of brotherhood, a massive misunderstanding of who we are as a connected people at the deepest levels. That technology has become more ubiquitous in our lives. As technology becomes more ubiquitous, it becomes more available, as it becomes closer to our hands, as it's everywhere. We have lost sight of just how it affects who we are at the deepest level of our beings. Nancy Bame finishes her earlier quote by saying this, Digital media thus calls into question the very authenticity of our identities, relationships, and practices. Digital media thus calls into question the very authenticity of our identities, our relationships, and practices couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more that that the digital media through which we consume, the digital media of which we are a part of day in and day out, it affects and questions all of that. Who we are, who we are in relationship to other people, and how we practice this faith, this identity, this personhood that we are. There's a photographer named Eric Pickersell, or Eric Pickersgill, he did this series called Removed. I, I don't know, maybe you, some of you have seen some of these images, but this was the first one. 
He took photographs of people holding their smartphones, holding their digital media tools and devices, and then just removed them. He just took it out of their hand, like completely digitally altered the photo photograph, pulling out their smartphones. And here you have how digital media affects your marriage relationship. How you lay there in bed, first thing in the morning, you pull out your phone and you're not even looking at the other person to see if they've awoken. You're just kind of paying attention, scrolling at will through Facebook, scrolling at will through Instagram, scrolling at will through TikTok, probably not TikTok because that one's loud, because uh, it's got all the sounds that are involved, but how it has affected that relationship, or this one that he's done, sitting around the dining room table, you've completely removed yourself and distanced yourself from the conversation that is taking place, and you begin to look down at the phone, scrolling at will through what is taking place in the world around you, but not what is right in front of you. Or this one, sitting with someone whom you care about. You have this great connection in a chair, <laughs> right? That's totally a great connection in a chair. You're sitting on the other person's lap, but both of you are so zeroed in on your phones and so zeroed in on the things that are happening miles and miles and miles away, but not focusing in on what is right there in front of you. We have allowed digital media to affect our relationships, our identities, the authenticity through which we interact with one another. Digital media has become something vastly different for us because so often we are now beginning to ignore we're starting to begin to ignore the relationships and the opportunities for relationships that are right in front of us. I'll tell you, every single time I go to a coffee shop, everybody is on their computer, and there's hardly any coffee shops that you can go to in the city that don't have a ton of people just focusing in, zeroing in on work or on their computer, which is fine. I understand the mobile office thing very well because that's my life. I am always at different coffee shops working. But every so often, I'll walk into a coffee shop and it'll be like, no computers allowed, no phones allowed kind of thing. You'll walk in and it's just the expectation is that you're not going to pull anything out, but that you're going to have an actual conversation with someone. There's a coffee shop that I walked into the other day. It said, no computers and no phones. Be real with one another. That was the sign. It's just forcing you, pressuring you into being connected with people around you as opposed to what was in your hand or what was on the screen in front of you. I think we've created, through this digital media world, a, a, a mirage, a digital mirage of ourselves. We've done a really good job of fashioning a life for the world to consume about who we are, about what we like, about what we do, constantly putting on new ores or new, new uh, essences about who we are as a people. We continue to push that away. And we've created and we've rendered an inauthentic person for others to consume. And as a result, we've become confused as to who we really are at the self. We have done a really good job of building ourselves up, of puffing ourselves up, of making ourselves this really larger-than-life human being, this really larger-than-life individual in the digital world. C.S. Lewis, I think, had something to say about this, although not necessarily digital. He said in The Great Divorce, you get bigger in your mind, but shrink from a lack of connection. I think this speaks beautifully 
to the digital world that we inhabit now, that we have made ourselves bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. What we see ourselves as having massive influence, about having massive amounts of, of, of friends and ideas and connections and thoughts. We see ourselves as this really brilliant human being. But in the end, we shrink from a lack of connection because the only connections that we have are through a digital line. Again, I don't think technology is bad, but I'm not sure we've reflected on how we utilize our technology in today's world. I don't think we've spent enough time allowing ourselves to be formed in positive ways by technology as opposed to deformed in our connections and our relationships with one another. I think C.S. Lewis was kind of on to something there. You get bigger in your mind, but shrink from a lack of connection. I think we've settled. I think we've settled for this kind of life. We've settled for this kind of image of who we are and who we can be. I don't know if you caught this. I think it was, it was if it wasn't last week, it was the week before. There was a tweet that went out attacking Brett Stevens, who is a conservative um, op-ed writer for the New York Times. Just a, It was an associate professor uh, put, put out a tweet calling Brett Stevens a bedbug. Right? Like, he didn't tag him. He didn't do anything with it. He just called him a bed bug based on an article that he had written. Just kind of this really silly, goofy thing. He got nine likes, right? And in the world of digital media on Twitter, getting nine likes is nothing. Like, no one can pay attention to, no one should ever pay attention to nine likes. You see nine likes on it, you're like, uh, whatever. Great. I had no influence with nine likes. Usually you're scrolling through Twitter and you're seeing like 10,000, 20,000, 60,000, 1.2 million likes or retweets kind of thing. You're like, oh, that's something to pay attention to because that has some traction. Nine likes is nothing. Brett Stevens kind of flipped out about it, wrote a letter to the provost of the university where this man was a, an associate professor. Wrote a letter to the provost as well as copied uh, this professor on on this letter, saying you should just be aware of what your, your employee is doing. Nine likes. His entire identity, Brett Stevens' entire identity, was being wrapped up in the fact that one person called him a bed bug, and nine people responded to it. Really? Nine people. That's it. He also went on MSNBC just a few days later to attack the professor once again. So this thing that got nine likes and probably maybe a hundred people saw it total, all of a sudden has this massive life to it. This massive sense of like, oh my gosh, this is the biggest thing ever, right? Because he went on MSNBC where he probably got 20 or 30,000 views. Right? Because that's probably how many people watch MSNBC during the daytime. Right? Like, that, that's it. So, like, this whole thing started to explode. He then wrote an op-ed in the New York Times kind of, like, subtweeting about the bed bugs thing. He spent one of his entire columns talking about this. Digital media, when we don't reflect on it, when we don't understand what is, what is happening in it, when we don't reflect on it and allow it to sit, we allow it to transform who we are and who we think we are. We get bigger in mind, but shrink from a lack of connection. Absolutely fascinating.
And I think we have settled. I think we have settled as a people for this lack of connection. Even though every single day I talk to people that desire it. Like, I just want deeper connections of authenticity and of love and of relationship. I desire this. I want this. I, I so desperately want this. But I just don't know how to get there. I think that the antidote to our lack of connection is actually found here, in this place, in this space called United, called the church. Acts chapter 2 is kind of the very beginning formulation of this church, of, of the church historic and the church today. And in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, the people have started to gather together, and it begins to describe what it is that they have gathered together to do. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching which basically means they devoted themselves to the scriptures. They devoted themselves to how the apostles were, were interpreting scripture in light of this resurrected Jesus. They were centering themselves and focusing themselves on who this Jesus was and how he had been revealed through ages past. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to true relationship with one another, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe as the, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. This is the very outset of the church. This is, the, the whole church had just started. And I mean, just started. Which meant that all of the Christians known to man were present in Jerusalem at this time. That Christianity hadn't really spread beyond this moment, beyond this space. So all of the believers were gathering together all at once in one place. And they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Which is a really beautiful phrase, right? Like they, they sold whatever they had to give to someone in need. Which begs the question, how do you know if someone has need? You have to ask them, right? You have to talk to them. You have to be in relationship with them. Oftentimes in our society and in our culture, we may have needs, but we don't randomly share it with people. Hey, I just met you. Guess what? I can't pay my electric bill. Right? Like, you'd be like, uh, cool, bro. <laughs> Sorry. And you'd be like, ah, guy's weird. Like, what's going on? Right? You don't just automatically share those things and have your need met. You're in relationship with people. We see this all the time within our church community. People who are in need of something and others step in to make that happen. Uh, for example, Lydia was out of housing because of student stuff, right? Like, like student stuff, because she's a student. And for some reason, SPU doesn't start until October. <laughs> Makes no sense to me, right? But Andy and Nicole were like, hey, come house sit for us while we're away for three weeks, right? Like, that's beautiful. That's meeting a need. But no one would know that without relationship without conversation, without needs being met in those spaces and in those places at those times. That is the true work of the church that is being formed here in Acts 2 and of which we are direct descendants of. They broke bread in, the temple, or in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Get that? Enjoying the favor of all the people. They had a good relationship with the world around them. 
In fact, later on in Acts chapter 5, verse 13, says they were highly regarded by the people. The church was looked upon favorably. The church was looked upon with good intentions and with respect because of who they were and what they were doing. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This was a people that was not hiding their faith to the world around them. They were out with their faith. They were vocal about their faith. They were living out their faith in beautiful ways to which the world looking from the outside in said, this is amazing. This is beautiful. This is lovely. There's a sweetness about these people. Rodney Stark wrote a book. Rodney Stark's an anthropologist. He's now a professor at Baylor University. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And as he talks about this early church, he talks about how they were highly regarded, not just by other Christians within their midst, but how they were highly regarded by the officials in the cities and in the country around them, all the way throughout the Roman Empire, as the church continued to expand and plant new vessels of being, new expressions of the church in different cultures and in different places around the Roman Empire, people started to write letters about them. They started to write letters about like, hey, these Christians are actually doing really good things. There's one letter by Dionysius where what he writes is really fascinating. There's this massive plague that is overtaking the Roman Empire. Massive, massive, massive plague. And people are dying left and right. And this guy says in a letter to one of the Roman officials that these Christians are basically really crazy because they give up their own life to go care for the sick and the dying among them. He says that it's one of the most amazing and beautiful things that they will put their own life on the line to care for our families, people that weren't even Christians. They're caring for our families to their own detriment. They're putting their own lives on the line for our families, whom we have said, good luck. And they walk away and they leave. These beautiful letters of what is happening in the first century, in the second century, in the third century, in the fourth century. This was not something that just happened in Acts chapter 2. That the church actually did these beautiful things together, knowing the needs of the people around them, listening carefully and beautifully and wonderfully to all of the things that were happening around them, and then caring for them well. They loved the people well. Highly regarded. The church is the antidote. The church, our relationships, our connections, who we are and what we're about centered around Jesus is the antidote to the lack of connection that we experience in the world around us. The church is called to be different. The church is called to be highly regarded to do the things that no one else will, to stand in the way of the things that others are doing that are evil, that are horrible, that are terrible, that are no good and dastardly. We are to stand in the gap and to make that difference, to be highly regarded as we show and as we express love in a different way, in a different way. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this a little bit 
says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Hebrews was written a lot later than Acts, and not only was it written a lot later after Acts, it was a different author than Acts. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Then our role as a people is to gather together, just like the early church, to spend time together, to not forsake the gathering together. Now, what's fascinating about this idea of gathering together is that in Acts chapter 2, it was daily. They were doing this every single day. They were gathering together in the temple courts. It was a massive, massive outpouring of people. Thousands of people were gathering together in the temple courts daily. For us, in our world and in the way in which things work, we should not forsake the gathering together daily. We should actually get together as often as possible with other Christians in this world around us. For what? To consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How we can continue to spur one another on towards making a difference in the world around us. And in that making a difference of the world around us, that we may be highly regarded in the world. That we may be highly regarded in our neighborhood. I, I want... United, I want this church to be a place that when people see a sign or when people see us doing something in the community, they're excited. Like, yeah, that's a good church. That's a good church. They may not necessarily jump in, right? They may not necessarily be a part of who we are and what we're doing, but that's not what we're called to do. God will add to our number daily. God will add to our people daily how that looks and how that functions. But we are to be highly regarded doing beautiful work in the community around us, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us be these kinds of people. Let us meet together daily, regularly, not giving up on it. Meet for lunch, meet for coffee, meet in small groups, meet on Sundays in church, meet for hikes, meet for everything under the sun that you possibly can. Meet together in this place and with these people. Be a community full of deep connection and love, spurring one another on towards good works. Dr. Cornell West said this, that love is a threat to those who think they can go from womb to tomb without any connection. Love is a threat to those who think they can go from womb to tomb without any connection. I think this is really true, that who we are and what we do can be a threat to people. That the type of authenticity that we experience and that we have with one another, the depth of relationship and love that we have with one another can be a threat to those on the outside looking in. Because we love we love differently. We love fully. And that is what we have been called to do as a people, is to love each other well, to love each other beautifully with all that we have and with all that we are. Brene Brown said it a little bit differently. She said it. She said, the absence of love, belonging, and connection always leads to suffering. 
That when we don't have these sorts of connections, when all we do is spend our time connecting with those people that are outside of our face-to-face conversations, that what actually begins to happen is that we suffer. We suffer the loss of relationship. We suffer the loss of depth. (laughs) Poor guy. (laughs) We suffer like forest. (laughs) we suffer let us not be a people that suffer but let us be a people that dive into relationship and connection deeply with one another because you see we need one another we need each other we need face-to-face connection we need face-to-face conversation we need face-to-face relationship that goes deep goes in depth with one another I said it a few weeks ago and a few weeks before that because I'm still really fascinated by it, but you have said, some of you in this community have said in response to the question, what is our secret sauce as a church? It's our authenticity. It's our authenticity, the way in which we not only love each other and care about each other, but get to know one another, that we don't feel like we're walking through this life alone, which is really beautiful because that's kind of our tagline as a church is you'll never walk alone. We really want that to be true, and we're experiencing that here and now in this place as a church. But who are we, and what do we do as a result? The the church in Acts 2 and in, in Hebrews was described as a church that did good things. They were highly regarded because of the work in which they did in the community. Hugh Halter defines church this way. He says that church happens when a group of people decide to go on mission, with God together. The church is a little bit different than just the fullness of relationship, but the the fullness of relationship actually cannot happen unless we're moving somewhere together, unless we're setting ourselves apart by making a difference in the world and in the neighborhood around us. That church only happens when a group of people decide to go on mission with God together, not by themselves, together. This is the distinguishing mark of a church. And I'm really proud of us because of some of the stuff that we've done. I I believe that mission actually solidifies connection. Some of the people that I am in have been in deepest relationship with in the past before. They're those that I've gone on missions trips with. They're those that I have served side by side with for years on end. And it's because of the depth of relationship through serving of us going on mission together with God that has totally transformed our relationships, has totally deepened the connections that I have experienced because I I think mission solidifies connection. Church is about mission. The church is about mission. And I think that we're about to enter into a season of mission as a church. In fact, we've been serving now for two years at Safe Harbor. Two years of of dinners every single night. In fact, as Thanksgiving comes around, I'm really excited because it'll be the second year in a row that we will have, that a group of people will leave the Thanksgiving dinner to go serve dinner together at Safe Harbor and then come on back and we'll celebrate some more, right? Like, like it's, it's those sorts of beautiful experiences together of serving. This last Thursday, I, I haven't been to Safe Harbor in probably a little bit over a month because of Elliot's soccer schedule. And so I, have, I hadn't been going down. I've been hanging out at soccer practices. And this, this week, Tracy said, hey, why don't you go? I'll, I'll take her to soccer. I was like, great, works for me. 
I show up and we're, we're serving together. We're doing stuff. I'm, I'm talking to some of, the, some of the people that live there. And one of the guys, his name's Lewis. He said, hey, you know what we need here? It's like, what's that? What do you need here? He said, we need a Bible study. It's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, that's random. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm serious. Like, I, I kind of almost like brushed it aside. Like, okay, whatever. Great. Like, you're just saying that because you know we're a church. Great. Yay. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm serious. We need a Bible study here. We need some spirituality up in this place. I was like, oh, you're serious. He's like, yeah, we could do it after dinner. We can do it another night of the week. Like, he starts to make all of the plans and lay all of the groundwork out of, like, what we could actually do in this place. It's like, okay. Yeah, we'll do that. I, I don't know how. I texted Jen. I was like, hey, Jen, we can figure this out. I don't even know what that means. Right? But it's this beautiful opening. We've been serving there faithfully for two years. We've developed relationships with residents left and right and as we've seen them transition into permanent housing, which has been absolutely beautiful. But now there's this new opening, this new door, because we, as a church, are highly regarded among the people at Safe Harbor. We are highly regarded. And I'm not sure the phrase highly regarded is high enough for how they view us and how they see us, how they respect us. They have constantly opened their doors to us, and now they're opening their doors in a deeper way of saying, will you please bring God into this place with us? To which I would respond, I think God is already here. I think God is already doing some things, but we'll help peel back the curtain and show you where he is if we can help. It's this beautiful opportunity of mission for us to do this together. And it's one of those things I look at and I'm like, I don't want us to do mission together where it's like, hey, we're just, we're going to provide you a Bible study. I want it to be a mutually transformative experience where we are learning from them. We're part of our community is actually a part of that Bible study. We're maybe they're even leading us in a Bible study. We're, it's this mutual transformation of learning and beauty coming to fruition in this space. Uh, there's other opportunities for us to step into this, this mission. You'll find out more about this next week, but we're going to do an exploratory trip down to the Dominican. I'm wanting to take two or three people in January to the Dominican to explore what it would look like for us to help plant a church there. Of what it might be for us as a church to actually be a part of starting something new. And just because we're less than two years old as a church doesn't mean we can't do something beautiful like that in a different part of the world around us. So there's more information coming about that at some point. But other opportunities for us to step into mission of mutually transformative relationships because that's what it would look like, mutually transformative relationship with those in the Dominican, maybe even Haiti. Like we're looking at those two places on the island of Hispaniola as a way of doing that. Another one that's coming up is uh, we're actually going to plant a church in Portland. We've been talking with a guy who's on, uh, who, who's work, has been working for the past couple of years to start a new church in the city center of Portland. We're going to do this. We're going to, we're, going to, we're going to help plant this church and what that looks like. And so he's actually going to come in December, and you'll find out way more about this in November, about what it looks like and all these things. But these are the conversations that we're having about how we can actually spur one another on towards love and good deeds, of mutually transforming relationships around us and making a difference in the world, because that is what it means for us to be the church we're a different church 
We're not the normal type of church that has ever been launched and planted. We might look the same in certain ways and in certain avenues, but we are truly a people that are on mission to make a difference in the world around us. I think that some of this that that, that the book of Acts can spurn us towards, this this chapter in Acts chapter 2 can spurn us towards is begin inviting people into this space with us. We truly can't be an authentic community if we're not inviting more people to share in that authenticity. I believe that we, too, are a part of the antidote of a connectionless world, that we have that power within us to invite and open this space up to others, to participate in this type of church, this type of space. Some of you have said, I think we're ready. I think we're ready to, to, to grow. I, I think we're ready for this church to get, to get bigger and to even explode in size, and to which I'm like, I don't know about explode in size, but I think we're ready. I think as a people who have been working for the past couple of years to cultivate these types of relationships internally and with one another, I think we're ready for that. I think we're ready to share who we are and what we have with the world around us. And I think it all begins by invitation. So let us be a people who are inviting others in to this deeper connection that we experience as we see ourselves as an antidote to a connectionless world, as we see ourselves as a different people in the here and now. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your son and thank you for the work that he does and continues to do in our life and in the world around us. May we open ourselves up to others. That even though we have experienced vulnerability, even though we have experienced vulnerability in this space, help us to open ourselves up to a deeper vulnerability to others around us. That we may invite others into these sorts of relationships that we're experiencing as we continue to grow and stretch and challenge ourselves in these places. So God, continue to challenge us, continue to move us, continue to open us up to you. It's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.